How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so everybody can make sure they are in right relationship to God. If you have, if any of us have committed sin, then we're out of fellowship. And that fellowship with God, that rapport has been broken. And to enjoy that fellowship and its benefits, we must confess sin to be cleansed and restored uh, to fellowship and to that relationship for an ongoing uh, walk by the Holy Spirit. I'm going to be teaching on the spiritual life when I go up to uh, Camp Arete this summer, so I've been developing some new little illustrations. One came up the other night. Uh, Jeff and I were talking about it after class. A lot of people have gotten the idea that all you need to do to go forward in the Christian life is to confess your sin. That's like saying all you need to do to go forward in the Christian life is to get in a car. Confession only gets you from outside the car to inside the car. You have to use things like uh, walking by the Spirit. You have to study the Word. You have to stay in fellowship. A lot of Christians spend their time getting in and out of the front seat of the car and never turn on the ignition. And they think that just by getting in the front seat of the car that they're going to go somewhere. And that's a misconception Confession doesn't get you anywhere forward. It just gets you in a place where you can go forward. And so that's, uh, that's just, that's an important thing to emphasize. I find that a lot of people have missed that along the way somehow. So we have to confess our sins so we can be in a place where God the Holy Spirit can teach us. And then we have to respond. There's all these volition points that hit us in the Christian life. And it's not just a volition to, to uh, get in fellowship, but to stay in fellowship, to use what the, the, the doctrine that we know, and to live our life on that basis. And the objective is to spend as much time enjoying our fellowship with God as possible, not to spend as much time getting back in fellowship as possible. Although when you're a baby, that's where you spend most of your time. You're just on a revolving door, it seems. But the idea is to grow past that. All right, let's bow our heads together. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, your grace is so good to us because it is beyond anything that we can ever, ever imagine. We can't outgive your grace. We can't uh, uh, outdo your grace. We can't somehow uh, destroy your grace. We can't outsend your grace. Your grace has covered everything for us, and you've provided everything, so the issue is learning to live and to exploit that which you've given us. Uh, We learn that from studying your word, and only through the study of your word do we have the tools necessary to go forward, and we use those tools under the power of God, the Holy Spirit, walking by the Spirit, being filled by the Spirit, walking in the light, walking in the truth are all 
different terms used to represent the same basic basic truth. God the Holy Spirit plus the Word of God is what transforms our lives. Father, we pray that as we continue our study, that tonight as we are more and more informed about issues related to what the Bible teaches about Israel and the issues of the day, we pray that we might have our uh, <clears throat> mind uh, <clears throat> enlarged in terms of understanding the significance of these things because more and more do we see these doctrines, these false doctrines we're studying this evening, influence the world around us. And we as believers need to be highly alert as to what's going on. And we pray that you would also use this information just to expand our understanding of the truth of your word, our appreciation for it, that you might be glorified in our spiritual growth, and our spiritual life. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. There's probably about only about five or six doctrines that I think are absolutely crucial today because they happen to be at the, at the, uh, at the crucial points where biblical correctness, biblical orthodoxy is attacked. Of course, one of those is in the area of the gospel, and that's the whole battle between free, the free grace theology and lordship or some kind of works, but within evangelicalism, that's, that's the focal point of that battle related to understanding salvation. In the spiritual life, which we spent a lot of time studying in Romans 6 through 8, the focal point of that battle happens to be in the area of the relationship of God the Holy Spirit. Do we just live our Christian life by being moral, being ethical, or is there a conscientious dependence upon God the Holy Spirit? Of course, you know the answer to that. It's the second. There's a conscientious dependence on the Holy Spirit as we walk by means of the Spirit. It's not a mystical thing because it's connected to the objective revelation of God's Word. There are battles related to understanding God's plan and purpose for history. That's the battle between covenant theology and dispensational theology. At the root of that, there's another battle, and that is how do you interpret the Bible? How do you understand the meaning of the text? And that's another battle. And that battle is germane to both the battle related to uh, dispensational thinking versus covenant theology as well as the issue and the role of Israel. Israel is becoming more and more of an issue in recent years. It has been over the last century with the return of Jews to the land for the first time in history. Is this, is this significant for the first time in the last 2,000 years? Is this significant for the plan of God? As Randy Price gave a paper several years ago at pre-trib called Is the return of, uh, of the Jews to the land prophetically significant. And it's important to understand how he said that because he didn't say, is this a fulfillment of prophecy, but is it prophetically significant? And the answer was, of course, yes. But there are a lot of Christians who don't believe that. And it's not a majority of evangelicals, but there are a lot of non-evangelicals that don't believe that. In fact, they think that you're the enemy. Uh, it's not you have been deceived and that Christians who believe that Israel is significant today, uh, that's one of the greatest errors and heresies and dangers in the modern world. And the reason we have problems with the U.S. in terms of foreign policy, the reason we were attacked on 9-11, and many other things is because 
of the horrible, evil influence of you terrible, wicked, dispensational Christian Zionists. It's all because you support evil, uh, Israel that we have all of this terrible, all these terrible things going on in the world. If we just got rid of Israel, then we wouldn't have a problem. Now, there's a lot of problems, as you know, with that view. We need to understand it because even though recent polls have indicated, I think I read a reference to one the other day that around 64, 65% of the American, the American voting public supports Israel. The reason they do, and we're only one generation away from losing that, the reason they do is because of the heritage of a plain, literal interpretation of Scripture. Why is it that the United States is so supportive of Israel and Europe is not? It goes back to the fact that Europe never was impacted by the consistent, plain, literal interpretation of the Scriptures as the English-speaking world was. Uh, coming out of uh, England, the English Reformation, the rise of the Puritans, their slow uh, focus on, uh, on a consistent, literal interpretation, and their focus on the value of, uh, of, of the Jew, Jewish people, and that God had a plan that included the future restoration of the Jews to the land. And that was more consistently laid out from, the, from, from uh, England, and it influenced the original uh, colonists who came to the United States. So, so ultimately, the reason is theological. But what's happened in recent years is that that theological influence is evaporating. We live in an era now where if you go, a recent survey indicated that probably 60% of the evangelicals, who, according to this survey, when asked why they support Israel, gave a reason other than a biblical, religious, or theological reason. They said because Israel's a democratic a nation in the Middle East, they're our only ally in the Middle East because they we share a lot of intelligence and information and technology back and forth and many other re- practical reasons. But a theological, or religious, or biblical reason was not in the top five answers. The more a person was involved in leadership in their local church, taught Sunday school, or the more they they were they were part of a uh, teaching community, you might say the more that changed. But that would affect older evangelicals who have a biblical foundation, but the younger Christians that make up the so-called broad evangelical spectrum, about 50,000 people, that group is, is being taught less and less as the years go by. So they don't know. And, and in a few years, we're going to have the uh, last of the World War II era generation, that is those who were born probably born before the baby boomers and some of the early baby boomers will pass from the scene and what will be left will be the uh, post-baby boomers, the Gen Xers and everyone else that comes along down to the millennialists. Uh, by that I mean those who were born in, and came to adulthood in the millennium and the change into the 21st century. That what's going to happen is that they're not, they're so biblically ignorant that they're going to become easily swayed. We're at the high watermark of philosemitism. 
Philo-Semitism is the term that is opposite anti-Semitism. Those who love Israel love the Jewish people. We're at the high watermark, and the bad guys, the bad guys are gaining ground. And we need to understand this because this is a flashpoint. One of my favorite quotes from church history is a quote from Martin Luther. And Martin Luther said, if we defend the fortress at every point other than the one at which it's being attacked, we will lose the battle. So we have to define what the attack points are, and we have to defend the castle, so to speak, at those at those points. And that's what I'm talking about, the gospel, hermeneutics, dispensationalism, Israel, the, uh, the role of the Holy Spirit in sanctification. These are the primary places at which the battle is taking place in our generation. We may not like that. I don't like the fact that I've had to spend a lot of time studying Islam over the last 10 years. I really don't care anything about Islam. It doesn't do anything to uh, get me excited. But that's where the battle is today. We're, we're in a religious war, whether this country wants to admit it or not. We are the objects of a religious war coming from Islam. And if we don't recognize that, we're just living in a fantasy world. So we have to figure out where the attacks are, and we have to, we have to shape our thinking to defend the, the fortress at those points, whether we like fighting there or not. We can't pick and choose the battlefield. The battlefield gets picked and chosen by other fa- many other factors. So in the last couple of weeks, as background, past couple of lessons, as background to understanding the importance of the doctrines we're going to cover in Romans 9 to 11, I've been addressing these foundational background issues. We started with the issue of uh, interpretation because that's the, today we, that's really the issue. What does the Bible mean? Not so much what does it say, because a lot of people will agree as to what it says, but it's what does it mean. We see a reflection of that battle in the culture wars in our in our nation today over the, the interpretation of the Constitution. Everybody knows what it says. People know what the Founding Fathers meant. But as I heard one guy call in on talk radio this last week say, who cares what the Founding Fathers thought. Who cares what they said? Let's get our nose out of the history books and, and, and apply, you know, and just make law for today. That person just absolutely flashed their doors in terms of their, their total ignorance. A person who's ignorant of history is bound to repeat history and repeat the worst mistakes of history. And numerous people have made comments that way. We have to know the historical background of things so that we don't, not only don't repeat those errors, but those, so we can really understand what's going on today and why it's going on today and how we can respond to it. Hermeneutics and interpretation is part of that. So as I pointed out in the previous lessons, the two basic errors we're facing here in terms of the role and relationship of Israel and the church are first of all replacement theology, which I partially got into last time we'll finish today, and anti-Semitism. Probably won't get there till ne- next time. What has given rise to both is a non-literal, allegorizing, spiritualizing method of interpreting the Scripture. In other words, the, the view that we hold to Scripture is that you interpret the Scripture in the light of its immediate historical context. That's called the historical method of interpretation. 
We do it in light of the normal meaning of the language, the words, and the grammar. That, that's where we get the phrase a historical, grammatical interpretation of Scripture. So we go into the uh, lexical meanings of the words and their uh, relationship in the sentences, the syntax, that all of this is important and is arranged the way it is uh, by God and is, is significant. And we interpret these things in terms of their normal usage. And part of normal usage includes things like figures of speech. But figures of speech have a literal meaning, as I've pointed out in the past. So we need to look and understand these two things. And so some of what I'm covering here may seem a little academic to some of you, but it's important as a pastor for me to make sure that you understand and can identify where the wolves are and where the weeds are. Because you're, as a sheep, going out there, you get exposed to all kinds of stuff that comes into your mind, from television to the news to uh, whatever it might be, neighbors, people talking, whatever. And you need to be aware of this so that you can develop your uh, grid of discernment. Biblically, we have this emphasis in Romans 9, 4 and 5, that the covenant still belong to Israel. The promises still belong to Israel. That means that Jews today, regardless of whether they're Messianic Jews, Buddhist Jews, secular Jews, atheist Jews, Hindu Jews, whatever, they still have a responsibility to the Abrahamic covenant to be circumcised. It doesn't make them more savable or less savable. It doesn't make them uh, more spiritual or less spiritual, but because that wasn't its function. Its function was to indicate that they were a a participant in the covenant that God made with Abraham, and that covenant is still in effect. It's an eternal, everlasting covenant. But it wasn't a soteriological covenant or even a covenant of sanctification. We'll get into that a little more as we get into these issues in the uh, few weeks related to that statement people go to and often misinterpret is uh, uh, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. This has to do with God's historical purposes for the descendant, physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not soteriology or sanctification. Everything goes back to that great covenant as it's summarized in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. So just to review again, uh, David Cooper's definition of, uh, for the golden rule of interpretation, when the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, make no other sense. Therefore, take every word at its ordinary, usual, literal meaning, unless the facts of the immediate context studied in the light of related passages and axiomatic and fundamental truths indicate clearly otherwise. That's the beauty of theology. Okay, last time we started on replacement theology, so I'm just, I've got a couple of review slides here just to get these definitions back in our mind. Replacement theology is the view that the church is the new or true Israel. And it, that has permanently, permanently, keyword, permanently replaced or superseded national Israel or ethnic Israel as the people of God. And therefore, national or ethnic Israel will not experience a restoration to the land God promised, the land of Israel, or to a position of favor with God. In other words, God had a purpose for Israel when they rejected the Messiah. That purpose ended. They're no longer relevant. They're no longer, they're no longer ethnically any different 
from then the Celts, then the Mexicans, then the Spaniards, then the Asians, then the Japanese, the Siberians. They're not any different, nothing significant about them. Therefore, there's nothing significant about the rest, the return of these Jews to the land. In fact, you'll find, and I'll just touch on this, you'll even find some people who believe in various ethnic theories that these Jews today aren't even real Jews. They go back, they're Khazars, going back to the uh, a, a Russian uh, king or in the southern part of Russia who converted the whole Khazar uh, kingdom over to Judaism. And so they're all Khazars. They're not really ethnic Jews. There's a lot of different views. You get British Israelism that the British or the Ten Lost Tribes, other uh, fantasy views that have nothing to do with history or the Bible. So supersessionism comes from the word super, sedere, the Latin, meaning one person sits on the chair of another, sits on top of another. So the church just replaces completely Israel. The promises that God made to Abraham that you would inherit the land from the Mediterranean to the Euphrates, now suddenly that becomes a metaphor for heaven. So for 2,000 years from Abraham to Christ, that was correctly interpreted and correctly understood to be a physical piece of real estate. But once the Messiah was rejected according to them, now that's heaven. It's not literal a literal piece of real estate. See, it's a sh- this is a hermeneutical shell game. They changed the meaning, and, and that has an implication for the uh, faithfulness of God, indicating that God may change the meaning of the terms of your salvation, and maybe you're eternally secure today, but in a few centuries, maybe you're not. It's terrible theology. Walt Kaiser said that replacement theology declared that the church, Abraham's spiritual seed, had replaced national or ethnic Israel and that it had transcended and fulfilled the terms of the covenant given to Israel, which covenant Israel had lost because of disobedience. In other words, God had a condition in the Abrahamic covenant that if you don't obey me, then this covenant's over with, and that wasn't there. Ronald DePros in his book on Israel says that replacement theology is the view that the church completely and permanently replaced ethnic Israel in the outworking of God's plan and as a recipient of Old Testament promises to Israel. I pointed out there were four different types of replacement theology or supersessionism, political supersessionism, punitive supersessionism, economic supersessionism, and structural supersessionism, and I'm not going to go back over the definitions of those. We covered that last time. So what are the core beliefs of replacement theology? First of all, the national Israel has somehow completed or, or, or forfeited its status as the people of God and will never, ever, ever again possess a unique role or function apart from the church. That's their view. There's no distinction between Israel and the church. This is one of the three things that Charles Ryrie, uh, professor at Dallas Seminary, head of the theology department back when I was at Dallas, I uh, said in his book on dispensationalism, there were three things that were unique, and these three things together distinguished dispensationalism. One was a consistent, plain, literal interpretation of Scripture. When you do that, you will hold to a distinction between Israel and the church. And then his third third characteristic was that 
the overriding purpose of Scripture was and history was the glory of God, not just salvation, which is what covenant theology does. But that's another story. So this is one of the two key distinguishing facets of dispensationalism. The second core belief of replacement theology is that the church is now the true Israel, not ethnic Israel. So the term, even the term Israel changes its meaning. It's not understood literally. So Israel means the church, and the church means Israel. Israel in the Old Testament is the church of the Old Testament, and the church of the New Testament is the Israel, same Israel of God. That Israel of God is just a code word for anyone who's a believer. And that violates the principle of literal interpretation. A third core belief is that the result of this is that the church has become the sole inheritor of God's covenant blessings originally promised to national Israel or ethnic Israel in the Old Testament, and thus this rules out any future restoration of national Israel. Therefore, if you believe this, then you don't believe there's any significance to present-day Israel, to the return of the Jews to the land. How do you think that's going to change the way you view U.S. foreign policy? There is an implication in both views. But if you're, if you hold to re, this view of replacement theology, then it's going to change your perception of what goes on in the Middle East. Ronald DePros in his book says that for replacement theology to qualify as a biblical option, passages which allow such an interpretation are not enough. See, one of the things that people don't understand is there are certain passages when you take them out of context, they could mean this or they could mean that. But when you compare them with other scripture and when you work out their implications, they can't mean those other things. They they are in one sense possible, but they're but they're excluded as you think through the implications of those of those views. So what he's saying here is that even though there are some passages which may allow that, that's not enough to say that that's what the Bible teaches. There needs to also be, very positively, passages which clearly teach the position as well as uh, no passages that actually exclude it. So replacement theology fails on both counts. So in terms of replacement theology, they say that the church is the new spiritual Israel and replaces the Jewish people, which is the old, which they say is the old fleshly national Israel. That Israel ethnically just represents the flesh. So they conclude that Israel was therefore an object lesson in sin and judgment. Can you see how that might lead to anti-Semitism? You just don't have too much respect for the Jewish people if that's your belief. The church, they say, that's the elect of all the ages, so that existed in the Old Testament. They believe that Jews who believe today are no longer Jewish, that the issue of Israel and the Jews is no longer relevant in the church age. Now, if you remember, Tuesday night a week ago in Acts, I taught about this problem of what Paul says about circumcision and that he had Timothy circumcised while at the same time, basically, he's written in, in Galatians 5 that if you get circumcised, you're really under the whole law, and so you shouldn't do that. 
And I pointed out that either Paul is, is completely contradictory of himself or he's talking about two different concepts. In, in Galatians, he's clearly talking about those who think that circumcision will get you something in salvation or in the spiritual life. Whereas with Timothy, that's just an issue of his cultural acceptability so that he can gain a hearing without having uh, irrelevant issues become issues uh, while he's, he's ministering. In the course of the history of these ideas, people have gotten the idea from the doctrine of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which says that in, if you've been baptized into Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, that that means that that Jewishness is no longer relevant. That's not what I pointed out. That's not what the passage is saying. What it's saying is that ethnic distinctions, gender distinctions, and economic distinctions in that passage no longer impact uh, the individual believer's direct access to God. Doesn't mean there aren't dis- still distinctions between men and women, or between Jews and Gentiles, or between slaves and freemen. There are distinctions, but they don't impact their direct access to God. So this idea that has bled over into some, even some areas of dispensationalists, I've heard dispensationalists teach that, that Jewishness no longer matters. It does matter. They're still under the Abrahamic covenant. But it doesn't matter in terms of their justification or their sanctification. But there's still a value historically to their ethnic relationship to Abraham. So in the fourth point here is the covenant with Jews, uh, according to replacement theology, that covenant with Abraham is completely nullified. So I'm going to run through seven observations related to replacement theology. The first is that, that it teaches that the church replaces or supersedes the nation Israel as the people of God. This view goes back to the middle of the second century A.D., and you can see hints of it even in the early part of the second century A.D. For example, the epistle of Barnabas. This is not a canonical epistle. It probably was not written by Barnabas, but it does date to the early part of the first century, maybe 110, 120. And in the epistle of Barnabas we read, but he, that is Jesus, was manifested in order that they, the Israelites, might be perfected in their iniquities. Notice there's a negative there towards the Jews. And that we, being the constituted heirs through him, might receive the testament of the Lord Jesus. goes on to say, Therefore he hath circumcised our ears, that we might hear his word and believe, for the circumcision in which they trusted is abolished. For he declared that circumcision was not of the flesh, but they transgressed because an evil angel deluded them. Where'd that come from? See, so there's this, this sort of incipient anti-Semitism that's starting to creep into the church that the, because the Jews were starting to be blamed as Christ killers. Now many early church theologians pr- promoted, uh, replacement theology. And this is, it, or church history is so important to understand. I learned more about theology from studying church history than I did ever from studying systematic theology because you see it in the real-time events of the debates that went on between people and trying to understand the scriptures. And you see it in, in, in a, things that get, are brought out in a little more relief. 
In the last part of the patristic era, which is the first three cha- uh, 300 years or so of the early church, uh, there was a growing acceptance of the replacement view, factors such as the church's perception of the two destructions of Jerusalem in AD 70 and again in uh, 135, and the growing Gentile composition of the church uh, meant that uh, in combination with the trend towards allegorical interpretation, uh, this led to a full-blown replacement theology by, let's say, roughly 300, if you want to put a date on there. You had statements like Justin Martyr, around 150, who's the first person to explicitly identify the church as Israel. Irenaeus, another well-known church father, said, uh, for inasmuch as the former, that is the Jews, have rejected the Son of God and cast him out of the vineyard when they slew him, God has justly rejected them and given to the Gentiles outside the vineyard the fruits of the cultivation. So we see this kind of thing going on. Melito of Sardis, 180, uh, dies in 180, says Israel was precious before the church arose. The law was marvelous before the gospel was elucidated. But when the church arose and the gospel took precedence, the model, this model was made void, conceding its power to the reality Israel was made void when the church arose. Clement of Alexandria. Now, last time I pointed out in hermeneutics this difference between Alexandria and Egypt, right on the Mediterranean, that they had become the heirs to Greek philosophy and Platonism, and they became a center of allegorical interpretation. In contrast to Antioch, the same Antioch we've been studying as the home base for Paul's missionary journeys in our study in Acts, that Antioch uh, was dominated by uh, uh, thinking in terms of a literal interpretation of Scripture. So which group do you think was amillennial? The Alexandrians. Which group were premillennial? Those in Antioch, they believed in a literal millennium. So theology makes a difference in how you perceive these things. Now, Origen came out of Alexandria, and he formalizes allegorical interpretation, and that wins out in the early in the early church. But you see these ideas are already present there. Tertullian said that Israel had been divorced from God, uh, no remarriage. Cyprian also is another early church father, by 250, who stated, I've endeavored to show that the Jews, according to what had been uh, before been foretold, had departed from God, had lost God's favor, which had been given them in past times, and had been promised them for the future, while the Christians had succeeded to their place. See, it's much more refined now, this idea of replacement theology. By the time Constantine made Christianity legal in the Roman Empire, uh, with his decrees and the uniting of church and state, uh, you get the introduction of this idea of Roman political rule, which is wedded to uh, wedded to Christianity and a view, this this non literal view of the kingdom now, which begins to enter into uh, the thinking of the of the Western Church. So they saw the new covenant in Christ as a replacement for the old Mosaic covenant, which represented Judaism and the Jewish people as a whole. Now, historically, this led to statements where the church was seen to be the fulfillment and replacement of Jewish ecclesiastical structures. Now, recently, 
within the last 10 years, Pope John Paul II said that the Roman Catholic Church rejected replacement theology. And what's happened, you have to read between the lines and understand the nuances here. After the Holocaust, replacement theology has been so identified with the Holocaust that nobody in their right mind really wants to say, I believe in replacement theology. But so the Roman Catholic Church comes out with a formal statement a few years ago that said that, that we reject Roman Catholic theology, but the Jews can't call themselves the chosen people anymore. Do you hear the contradiction there? If the Jews aren't the chosen people, you've just validated replacement theology. They're trying to say that replacement theology narrowed the definition into those who are just uh, wickedly anti-Semitic. And that's the Holocaust. But we believe where the church superseded the Jews, but we don't want to go too far. So they see the church as the new people of God. Now, the second observation on this is that replacement theology has been the dominant view of the church from the third century until the middle of the 19th century. So if your dominant view is replacement theology, how many people are going to talk about the rapture? You're not even going to think about the rapture. You're not even going to think. That's why dispensationalism basically disappeared into the corners and the crevices of, of church history is because the dominant view was, was amillennialism, allegorical interpretation, and a replacement theology. You can't get to dispensationalism unless you believe in a, in a literal hermeneutic and a distinction between Israel and the church. It won't happen. So that's why it's such a late development. There are elements of it, very early in the church, and you can, and more and more scholars are finding more and more evidence of a pre-trib rapture and other uniquely dispensational ideas in much, much earlier in church history now, but it, it wasn't the mainstream idea, so it was kind of buried off to the side. So, uh, in the patristic era, they mixed a lot of these ideas together. This leads to a development of replacement theology and pretty much ends the idea of any hope for a national Israel in the future. By the end of the patristic era, you have this, this incredible individual by the name of Augustine who is, the, who is brilliant. Uh, he, he formalizes allegorical interpretation and an amillennial theology and many, many other things, and also the idea that, you can, that salvation is only in the church. The church, of course, is the Roman church, and that's becoming coalesced. Some people say, when did Roman Catholicism start? It depends on what your criterion criterion is. Uh, probably somewhere between 600 and 800. But these other ideas began to coalesce a little bit, a little bit earlier. So, so Augustine introduces this idea. He has certain ideas that are uh, hostile to Israel. According to Cardinal Carlo Maria Martini, Augustine introduced a negative element into judgment on the Jews. He did so by advancing this theory of substitution, whereby the new Israel of the church became a substitute of ancient Israel. So the Roman Catholic Church of the Middle Ages was supersessionist. If you want to know how did Germany, Germany's considered the most civilized nation in Europe in the 19th century. How did such an advanced civilization by the end of the, at the end of the 19th century degenerate into uh, the Nazi Party and the Holocaust in the mid 20th century? It goes back to this. This is bred into the thinking of much of Europe 
uh, this idea of, of uh, that the, the Jews are evil and they are, they've been uh, replaced uh, by, by the church. Martin Luther, John Calvin also held to this view, and it wasn't until you get to the Puritans that things began to change. Three of the great individuals who were influential were Plato, the introduction of Greek philosophy, and which played a major role in Augustine's view that the church was the spiritual form of the kingdom and that the Jews were a uh, people to witness to, and he held to an amillennialism. And Calvin held to the same kind of view. And all are supersessionists. And uh, so with Calvin's theology, because he got it from a lot of it from Augustine, and it's also uh, covenantal. So here's a contrast. I'm just going to quickly go through this chart. A contrast between um, Israel, I mean, uh, uh, between a, uh, the doctrine and the covenantal view. So the doctrine is how, do, how does the covenant view, covenantal theology view Israel's national promises? They're spiritualized into the church. How does covenant theology view Israel and the church? They're one people of God. That's a buzzword. We're only one people of God. When I went through seminary, a lot of things were, were this kind of thing was a little fuzzy. And especially when you get the development of this new idea called um, um, uh, progressive dispensationalism, people people wonder, well, what is that? And and the proponents of progressive dispensationalism tried to argue that it was just a refinement of dispensationalism. And others, like Bruce Waltke, a former dispensationist, former professor at Dallas Seminary, when he read their, their position, he basically said, well, they're covenant theologians and they just don't want to admit it. They become amillennialists and they don't want to admit it. There are dangers in these ideas and we have to know what they are. Uh, Jerusalem, for them, uh, the land of Israel, Eretz Israel, is fulfilled. Old Testament, it's annulled. Jerusalem's no longer significant. The temple doesn't need to be rebuilt. In view of their future, they're amillennial, postmillennial, or preterist, which means they think it was all fulfilled back in AD 70. Uh, Armageddon is just figurative. How many people think of Armageddon as something other than a literal battle that takes place in relationship to the Valley of Armageddon located in the Galilee in Israel? Most people. It's an asteroid's coming. It's Armageddon. We've discovered atomic bombs. It's Armageddon. Armageddon has become a metaphorical term, but it's not used that way in the Bible. Uh, but it comes out of this replacement theology. The return of Jesus is just one visible event at the end of history for them, and the millennium is not a thousand-year period. It is just a figurative event. This comes out of uh, Stephen Sizer's book. He is a major proponent of replacement theology, and he hates Christian Zionists. Now, on the cover of, of, of uh, Vlock's book on... Uh, on replacement theology. He uses these two figures uh, that are identified, these two statues uh, that are in the south transept portable of the Strasbourg Cathedral that were designed that were designed in twelve thirty. Now this is before the Protestant Reformation. So this is at the very height of of amillennial allegorical interpretation. And so these two figures uh, represent, one represents the church, the one on the left is ecclesia, 
and the one on the right is Sunagoge, and they represent the church and Israel. And this is represents the uh, the the view of the church in Israel in the Middle Ages. Uh, <clears throat> the super it, it shows a supersessionist symbolism. Ecclesia is standing tall and erect, wearing a crown, royal, it's in a dominant position, whereas synagogue is blinded, that's Israel's blind, stumped, symbolic of spiritual blindness, and rejected status. Uh, Ecclesia has a scepter, indicating rule, while synagogue has a dead stick, indicating her despised and cast-off wandering status. Since the law has been abrogated, Israel, too, has been rejected. Notice the law is a closed book held down by the side behind her leg to show it's no longer relevant or significant. And so that just, in in, in a depiction there of the statue is the picture of replacement theology. It was in the Middle Ages that you started seeing the rise of Christian anti-Semitism where you saw caricatures of the Jews and in places where they had to wear certain badges or certain signs, this is when they're first put into, uh, where they're first put into ghettos, restricted to certain areas of, of a city, and they couldn't do business or go out of that area. And it's also the time when you have the first rise in the 12th century in Norwich, England, of the blood libel. The blood libel was the view that that Jews used the blood of Christian babies to make matzah for Passover. And that pro- comes up every now and then. Uh, one of the most famous instances occurred in 1839 in Damascus, and five Jews were arrested and put on trial. And um, I believe his name was Charles Churchill, an uncle of Winston Churchill's, went to their defense and won the case so that they were set free. But this blood libel has cropped up again and again and again uh, throughout church church history. Uh, so here's a picture of a Jewish badge. Um, statement here that everyone inquires why the Jews wear, wear yellow rings. In the first place, because they're the devils. That's why one finds such symbols among them. While they scrounge and scrape, they must have such identifications. Thus, these identifications show us that the Jews are nothing of value to Christians. That's a Latin translation from a medieval inscription. So this idea of the Jews wearing a yellow star of David, was, which is what Hitler did to the Jews, didn't start with the Nazis. This goes back to the Christians in the early Middle Ages. Third observation, since the mid-19th century, replacement theology has received serious criticism and widespread rejection. Over the last 150 years, there's been a backlash to it, but this is it's overly caricatured, and it's often identified as you know something related to that which brought up the Holocaust. And I don't I think that's an over over overstatement here. So I'm going to skip that couple of these slides just for the sake of time. Uh, this, there's a shift away from this more overt supersessionism, and uh, uh, David Halveda in his book on Jesus and Israel states, the traditional view that the Christian church had superseded Jewish Israel, which no longer has a role in God's plan of redemption, is no longer dominant. 
even though no consensus has developed on how to evaluate the present position and future role of Jewish Israel. The negative tones prominent in the church's traditional view have been greatly muted, but they're still there. They just want to call it something else. Now, what's grown out of replacement theology, which is really spooky and scary because of its influence today, is something called, uh, the term is really coined by uh, Paul Wilkinson, a member of the uh, uh, pre-trib rapture study group, usually gives a paper every year, he wrote his Ph.D. dissertation on the role of John Nelson Darby on the rise of Christian Zionism. And he turned this, terms this view Christian Palestinianism. It's the antithesis of Christians who believe in, in Zionism. Now, let's define Christian Zionism. Because there's a lot of weird Christians out there. I don't know if you've noticed that or not, but there's a lot of weird Christians. And there's a certain segment. We've got to love them because God loves them. And there are brothers and sisters in Christ, but they're a little bit off balance. And they want to show up wearing uh, Jewish prayer saws and blowing a shofar and doing all of this kind of stuff in just regular church because they've almost assigned a mystical, magical quality to to people who are Jewish. And we got to love them because they love Jews, they love the Israel, and they love the Bible. But you don't want some people to go out in public too much. And and I've had, a reason I bring that up is because I've had conversations with some people who've only run into the wacko extreme, and so they think that's what Christian Zionism is. And that's not Christian Zionism at all. Zionism is the belief that the Jewish people have a right to return and establish a national homeland in the land that God, in their historic homeland, the land that God gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's it. Nothing more, nothing less. It doesn't mean that you validate everything that, that the, the state of Israel does, every political decision. It just, they have a right of return, just as the Italians had a right to unite and have a nation, and the Germans had a right to unite and have a nation, and the Czechs had a right to have the Czech Republic, and the Hungarians had a right to have a Hungarian nation, the French have a right to have a French nation, the Jews have a right to have a Jewish nation, and the right of defensible borders, which is the, on the basis of self-defense and the right to have secure borders and to live in their national homeland without fear of people shooting rockets at them every day or blowing themselves up on their buses every day and that they can do whatever is legal and normal for any other nation to protect themselves and provide security. That's what Zionism is. Christian Zionism comes from Christians who believe that's true, but they add a new wrinkle. They believe that there is a biblical basis for the Jews returning to their homeland, and Christians should support that because they see it as a fulfillment of biblical prophecy. And so they bring a Christian element to it. But actually, when you and I talk to a lot of people who aren't Christians, they don't care what the Bible says. They're more concerned about other facets, and there are three lines of argument to support the return of the Jews to the land. There's a biblical argument, which we're all familiar with, there's a historical argument. There's been Jews living in the land the entire time. They didn't disappear. You know, I went through a long study several years ago where I traced this all the way through from the from the 135 A.D. all the way up to the present. There's always been a Jewish population, a Jewish presence in the land. There's been a Jewish presence in Jerusalem much of that time, not all of it, because the 
Muslims ran them out, Byzantines ran them out for a while, uh, Hadrian ran them out for a while, but there's always been that presence there. So there's a historical argument. And then there's a a legal argument based on the San Remo resolutions coming out of the end of World World War I. But all three of those lines of reasoning are rejected by these uh, Christian Palestinians. And you find this in in, uh, a lot of different Christian denominations. This is the official position of the United Church of Christ, the Presbyterian Church, USA, the Church of England, the United Methodist Church, not the Evangelical Methodist Church. I know there's a pastor of an Evangelical Methodist Church down in Sugar Land, and I've run into him on my way back from Israel the last two years. Uh, he's very pro-Israel. Uh, so there, the Evangelical Methodist Church is different. The National Council of Churches of Christ in the USA, the Church of Scotland, the Reformed Church of America, the Methodist Church of England, uh, the Roman Catholic Church, Bethlehem Bible College, which has sponsored this Christ at the Checkpoint uh, anti-Zionist, anti-Israel rally for several years, uh, World Vision, Used to, World Vision used to put out these little things. You could save money to feed the hungry around the world, and you'd get a little plastic bread loaf with a slot in the top to put money in for kids, usually something they do in Sunday school. They, they used to be very pro-Israel, but they're not anymore. World Council of Ch- Churches. What's their view? Their view is, they say, and this comes out of the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland. Oh, no, this, this one, first one comes out of the Jerusalem Declaration on Christian Zionism. We categorically reject Christian Zionist doctrines as false teaching that corrupts the biblical message of love, justice, and reconciliation. You didn't know that, did you? That what you believe corrupts the Christian, the biblical message of love, justice, and reconciliation. With urgency, we warn that Christian Zionism and its alliances are justifying colonization, apartheid, and empire building. I'll talk about that next time under anti-Semitism. The Church of Scotland said Christian Zionism seeks openly to use the Jewish Zionist cause in order to achieve its own theological and political reality. Wow. Christian Zionist worldview has cataclysmic consequences for a religiously integrated and lasting peace in Palestine. See, it's all your fault. You're a Christian Zionist, and that's why there's a problem in the Middle East. It's your fault. You're, you're a Christian Zionist. You believe that God has a future plan for Israel. Uh, they, they say Christian Zionism portrays an unjust God with an unjust people and seeks to exclude and expel and arguably eliminate whatever is perceived to be alien to its cause. Okay, another group that started up that, that has really promoted this is, is known as Sabeel. And there in the Fifth International Sabeel Conference in Jerusalem 2004, they said, we warn that the theology of Christian Zionism is leading to the moral justification of empire, colonization, apartheid, and oppression. Sounds like Democrats talking about George Bush, doesn't it? John Stott, very well-known British evangelical scholar, author of numerous books, says, I myself believe that Zionism, both political and Christian, is incompatible with biblical faith. Then we get Hank Hanegraaff, the Bible Answer Man. He used to be on radio here. I don't know if he still is or not. Uh, He said Christian Zionist beliefs and behaviors are the antithesis of biblical Christianity. Now, here's a good one. Gilbert... uh, uh, Belazikian is one of the founding leaders of Willow Creek Community Church. Bill Hybels is the pastor there. Back in the 90s, this was the largest uh, evangelical church in the U.S. It's been superseded now. I've got to teach you the new vocabulary. By what church? Lakewood. That's right. So Lakewood is now the largest church in America. But 
but but Willow Creek hasn't blown, uh, disappeared. They funded a movie um, that is very anti-Zionist, and uh, with, it's called "With God on Our Side." Uh, Bill, he- the church fun- helped fund it, and Bill Heibel's wife and daughter are much promoters of this. Also, Rick Warren, with the purpose-driven heresy coming out of Southern California, has done so much to destroy orthodoxy, but he does it very subtly, has also gotten on board with this. So we need to know who the players are, because a lot of you like to watch Fox News, and for some reason, people at Fox News like to have uh, Rick Warren on. So you always have to know who the wolves in sheep's clothing are. Tony Campola, who's another popular Christian speaker, he's professor emeritus of sociology at Eastern University and a former faculty member at the University of Pennsylvania, says the most serious threats to the well-being of Palestinians in general and to the Christian Palestinians in particular come not from the Jews, but from Christian Zionists in the United States. So what are their basic beliefs? Most of this we've hit already, the strong rejection a strong rejection of literal interpretation in favor of a spiritual hermeneutic. They have a strong rejection of dispensationalists. They, dispensationalists they love to hate. They affirm liberation theology. Hello, where have we heard about liberation theology before? This is socialism and Marxism applied and dressed up in Christian terminology. Does the name Jeremiah Wright mean anything to anybody? This was uh, Obama's pastor... Uh, up in up in uh, Chicago, Jeremiah Wright holds to black liberation theology. There's black liberation theology and Palestinian liberation theology, and you know all these different. They're all basically the same thing, which is anti-Christian, anti-freedom, and anti-truth. Uh, they believe that modern Israel has no biblical connection with or justification for owning the promised land that uh, modern Israel is an apartheid state. I guess I left the rest of the word there. I think I got a phone call when I was typing that. Uh, amillennialism and replacement theology. Now, Melanie Phillips is one of the good people. Melanie, I love to read her columns. She has several books out, one of which is called Londonistan, talking about the danger of the uh, Islamic community in Britain and how that's changing things, states, Uh, So when Arab Christians reinterpreted Scripture in order to delegitimize the Jews' claim to the land of Israel, this kick-started replacement theology. She's a little off on her history there, but she's basically right, uh, which roared back into the imagination sermons and thinking of the Anglican Church. See, the Anglican Church in the 19th century was very pro-Israel and very philo-Semitic. That's what produced the great leaders who led up to the Balfour Declaration. Uh, Melanie Phillips goes on to say, this revisionism held that Palestinian Arabs were the original possessors of the land of Israel. There was no such thing as a Palestinian Arab up until uh, Arafat decided to co-opt the term Palestine, which had a, up till the mid-60s was used to apply to Jews. The Palestinian brigade in the, in the British Army were Jews, and they wore a patch. It said the Palestinian Brigade. They were Jews. They weren't Arabs. So that's all been distorted. Uh, 200 years ago, there were just very, very few Arabs living in the land. Most of them were Bedouins. Most of them were uh, very, very poor tenant farmers, and uh, nothing was going on. In fact, one of the things I learned this last trip to Israel 
is one of the reasons that so much of Israel was devastated in the 19th century was that the Ottoman Empire imposed a tax on trees. What do you think that, what do you think the result, the unintended consequence of that tax was? Cut down all the trees. And how's that going to change the environment? How's that going to change the uh, topography? What's that going to do to the topsoil? Just absolutely devastated the land. So it was swampy. It was arid. The land wasn't worth anything. The topsoil was blown away in the hill country. Uh, it was it was terrible. And so very few people wanted to even be there. A couple of the key players in this whole movement, Elias Shakur is considered the godfather of Christian Palestinianism. And he says, uh, we've been taught for centuries that the Jews are the chosen people of God. We do not believe anymore that they are the chosen people of God, since now we have a new understanding of that chosenness. Complete rejection. This is what happens when you don't uh, interpret the Bible. Naim Atik um, says that strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. You shall eat the wealth of the nations. He cites that, and he says, this exclusivist text is unacceptable today. It must be de-Zionized. Just get out our, our razor blades and reinterpret the Bible. And he also says Samson was the first suicide bomber. Thought you'd like that. Christian Zionists thrive on war and conflict. It's all our fault. Christian Zionists harbor an obsession with the Battle of Armageddon. Now, those there aren't too many people left, but some of those who went on that first trip to Israel with me, when Wayne House allowed a, a film crew to come along and film us, they turned it into a horrible movie, horrible movie, I'm not even going to tell you the name of it, but one of the contentions in that is they, they twisted everything we said, made us look like we were anti-Semitic, and that we just loved and anticipated the Battle of Armageddon. Because that's what they, they say. The only reason you want the Jews to get back to the land is so that Jesus will come kill them all at the Battle of Armageddon, you anti-Semite you. I had never heard that before. See... I had made a mistake, and that mistake was sometimes I don't like to go away on conferences because I can't really see the immediate relevance. But right after I moved back here, Tommy and Randy went to one of these one of these groups, major conference in Chicago. Called me up, said, "You want to go with us?" I said, "Yeah, but you know, I got Bible class. I got to teach. I can't go." Well, if I had known what, if I had learned what I would have learned there, we wouldn't have gotten sucked into that awful thing. So sometimes. You know, that's why I go to conferences. Is it, I, I, you gotta be informed. There's so much garbage out there today. Okay, Naima Tech is, he's one of the leaders of foremost thinkers in, uh, uh, Palestinian, uh, uh, Christian Palestinianism. He says, when confronted with a difficult passage in the Bible, one needs to ask such simple questions as, is the way I'm hearing this the way I've come to know God in Christ? See, it's totally subjective. He says, does this fit the picture I have of God that Jesus has revealed to me? See, that's, it's, you don't go see what the text says. You just have this subjective image of Jesus, and then you fit that into it. That's called idolatry. Colin Chapman's another thinker. He says the New Testament writers cease to look forward to a literal fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies of a return to the land and a restored Jewish state. You may say, boy, this is boring. I don't like this. But this is really gaining traction out there. I hate studying stuff like this because it, it doesn't seem real edifying, but it's protective, okay? 
This is what's going on, and it is increasing in its exposure. Steven Sizer, this guy is one of those guys you just hate to have on the other side. Why? Because he grew up as a Christian Zionist. He says, as a young Christian at Sussex University uh, in the mid-'70s, I was strongly influenced by dispensational Christian Zionist leaders such as David Pawson, Tim LaHaye, and Hal Lindsey. Devouring Hal Lindsey's best-selling book, The Late Great Planet Earth, and hearing in person his lectures on eschatology in the book of Revelation, it seemed as if the Bible was literally coming true in this generation. My conversion came in two parts. That's his conversion to uh, Christian Palestinianism. Uh, I'll just skip a couple of these other quotes, but you get the main idea. In Galatians 6.16, he said, this is perhaps the apostle's most stark example of universalizing the new identity of the people of God. That's the phrase where Paul says, and, and greet the Israel of God. What he's talking about is greet the Jew who are believers. And that's very clear. Israel always means Jewish people everywhere it's used in Scripture. But but among the allegorizers, they want to take that phrase, Israel of God, and say, no, that applies to the church. They are the new Israel. So that's a battlefield passage. Uh, Sizer says the apostle is redrawing the definitions for self-identity, and with this redefinition comes a realignment of the privileges that come with all identities. He is a major influence in, in Britain. Then we have N.T. Wright. Now, why is N.T. Wright important? Because N.T. Wright has influenced at least one pastor who we ordained at Baraka 20 years ago. And he has influenced others, and it's causing problems in some churches who have members that are that are members of families of folks in this congregation. N.T. Wright says, Israel's story has been embodied in one man. Guess who that is? Not Abraham, it's Jesus. The whole story of Israel reached its intended climax, that's the end, uh, with his death and resurrection. The death is the exile of Israel, and the resurrection is the restoration of Israel. See how the allegory works there? He says the church seems to have taken the place occupied by Jewish ethnic identity. He goes on to say the Lord Jesus was reconstituting Israel around himself, reinterpreting Israel's eschatological hope, no longer literal, and reusing Israel's prophetic heritage, retelling its story, and redefining what the kingdom meant. He redoes everything. So he says the promises to Jerusalem, to Zion, are now transferred to Jesus and his people. Pure replacement theology. He goes on to say, the American obsession with the second coming of Jesus, especially with distorted interpretations of it, continues unabated. Seen from my side of the Atlantic, the phenomenal success of the Left Behind books appears puzzling, even bizarre. That's our lovely friend Tom Wright. And then we have this quote from Alan Hart, who's a British journalism. I ran across this picture of him. I just thought it was too perfect. Uh, the conference he's attending, where, or the, the picture up there says, Zionism, the real enemy of the Jews. He said, it's time to give Israel's hardcore Zionists their real name. They are the new Nazis. If Europeans and Americans don't stop the new Nazis, it's likely their end game will be the extermination of millions of Palestinians. So we're the new Nazis. Okay, I'm going to run through the rest of this very quickly. Almost done. Those who hold a replacement supersessionist view often have often used replacement terminology, but they reject the idea that they're replacement theology. That's the point there. 
I'm going to skip these slides. These are just quotes from various theologians who all hold to different forms of, of replacement theology. Well, there's one from dear old Bruce Waltke. It says, The New Testament teaches the hard fact that national Israel and its law have been permanently replaced by the church and the new covenant. The Jewish nation no longer has a place as a special people of God. That place has been taken by the Christian community, which fulfills God's purpose for Israel. Uh, let's go on. Observation five. Those who argue for fulfillment, enlargement, expansion, and or transference language do not use different arguments than those who argue for replacement. See, what this point is saying is that um, the term that people want to use today is not replacement because that has bad Holocaust overtones. So they use terms like fulfillment, enlargement, expansion, or transfer. That's the terminology they use. So it's all a word game. Uh, sixth observation of replacement theology is a legitimate title for the view that the church replaces, fulfills, or supersedes Israel. That's what it is, and that's what it means. Uh, last observation, nations and promises to nations are not unspiritual, nor are they things that need to be transcended. Replacement theology talks about Israel being redefined and physical land promises being transcended by greater spiritual realities. But where does the Bible ever indicate that nations are unspiritual or lesser types that must give way to greater spiritual realities? I mean, their whole methodology is flawed. And so they end up with a complete false view. Now, one last quote from Gary Burge. Gary says, and now the reason you need to know Gary is because Gary is a major teacher and influence at Wheaton. Wheaton has often been thought by a lot of people to be conservative. Trust me, folks, Wheaton hasn't been biblically conservative in their theology since, oh, World War II. A lot of people sent, off their, sent their kids off to Wheaton to get a good Christian education, and they were... Uh, spiritually eviscerated by the lousy theology. Wheaton hasn't had somebody believed in literal uh, Genesis creation since about 1950. Gary Bird says, Reformed theologians are not at all convinced that the promises to Abraham, much less Moses, are still theologically significant today. The work of Christ is definite. There's one covenant, and it's with Christ. That's basically it. So... That's the issue with replacement theology. I'm glad I got through that because now it's done. Next time I want to look at the issue of um, the issue related to anti-Semitism. And this is growing according to the Anti-Defamation League. Anti-Semitism is on a huge growth spurt worldwide. And for the last uh, 65 years or 60 years since the end of World War II, uh, it, it wasn't because everybody was just sort of um, uh, put, put in the shadows. All the anti-Semites were put in the shadows by the horrors of the Holocaust. But people have short memories. Cultures have short memories. History disappears and vanishes into the mists of time. And we're on the cusp of a rise in anti-Semitism. It's increasing uh, by leaps and bounds all over Europe and uh, that's just Christian anti-Semitism. Then you have uh, Islamic anti-Semitism, and that is also fueling the, the Middle East. It, it's not about the Palestinians. I mean, if you, if you had a, um, on a scale of cultural value, the Arabs think that the scum on the bottom of the ocean are the Palestinians. 
That's why they don't want to let them into their countries. And they just leave them there to rot in these, in these camps, these displaced persons camps, as, as uh, just something to fester so that they can keep tweaking Israel. They, they don't care at all about the so-called Palestinian Arabs and have done nothing for them. Uh, and that's just been demonstrated in history. They just view them as a tool to, to fight those evil Zionists in Israel. So next time we'll come back, I want to look at anti-Semitism, its biblical roots, its historical and present manifestations. Then we've covered a good foundation for going into Romans 9 to 11. Romans 9 to 11 affirms very strongly that God has not deserted his people Israel. Why is that important? Because if God goes back on his promises to Israel, then how do you know that God's not going to go back on his promises to save you? This is all about eternal security. Trust me. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to learn a little bit about the horrible things that are going on in the world today the false doctrines that are out there, that we might be better prepared and strengthened to face them, to tackle them, and to recognize them when they come into our purview. Father, we are reminded that that um, your grace was extended to Israel and will be extended to Israel and is being extended to Israel, and the gospel is available to all. And, Father, we pray that uh, you would give us opportunities that we would uh, pray, support the Jewish people, support Israel, and that we might, as evangelicals, not be guilty of the failures of past generations in succumbing to Christian anti-Semitism. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.